Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hello, what's happening out there? This is The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening wherever you happen to be. Today on the program, my guest is Tara Conklin, author of the novel Community Board. And it was very funny. As soon as I told, you know, all my friends that I was that I was writing this book about that was based on a, a Nextdoor app, everyone started sending me, like, their favorite posts because of course every single neighborhood has their own you know moments of scandal and controversy and the silly you know the silly disputes that erupt on these boards so I was just yeah I still uh, people are still sending me emails all right everybody there we have Tara Conklin her new novel is called Community Board it is available now from Mariner Books it was the official March pick of the book club, the TNB book club, the Nervous Breakdown book club. The Nervous Breakdown is my longtime literary site. It has had its own monthly book club for more than a decade. For more on that, visit thenervousbreakdown.com. It's essentially the other people book club, too. Community Board was published on March 28th, and it is the follow-up novel to Tara Conklin's bestseller, entitled The Last Romantics. I had a great time in conversation with her. That is coming up in just a bit. Today's episode is brought to you by Melville House, publisher of a blazingly original novel by debut author Jinu Chong. It is called Flux. Flux is a mind-bending and stylish neo-noir about a young man whose reality unravels when he begins to suspect that the tech startup he works for has inadvertently discovered time travel and is using it to cover up a string of violent crimes. Flux is a haunting and sometimes shocking exploration of the cyclical nature of grief, of moving past trauma, and of the pervasive nature of whiteness within the development of Asian identity in America. That's Flux by Jinu Chong, available now from Melville House. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Every single episode of this podcast, more than 800 and counting, all of it is made available to listeners free of charge. There is no paywall by design. Nobody likes paywalls. I try to make this listening experience as user-friendly and seamless as possible for you guys, but what I'm counting on 
is I am counting on regular listeners, people who tune in most weeks, every week, people who really love this show, people who feel like they learn something from it, get something from it, people who love literary culture and simply want to support it. I'm counting on people of this sort to support this show for as little as $1 a month. And I've tried to make supporting this show a no-brainer. $1 a month. That's it. $1. Or 3 Or 5 Or 10 Or 20 It's your choice. It's a sliding scale. You get to pick whatever you can swing. And as you move up the scale, you get merchandise. Just visit Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other PPL pod. That's Patreon dot com slash other PPL pod and support this podcast and help me keep doing this work. If you would like to get another people t-shirt, just visit the show's official website, otherppl.com. If you would like to sign up for my once a week free email newsletter, you can do that at otherppl.com or bradlesty.com. The newsletter is pretty simple. I let you know about the latest episodes and I share what is essentially an enumerated list of links to essays, articles, stories, poems, things that I've been reading and finding compelling and amusing, or both. If you would like to get the newsletter, have at it. If you have a couple of minutes and you would be so kind, I would appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to this podcast. It helps new listeners find this podcast. You can watch The Other People Show on the Other People YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube, search for it by name, Other PPL. And when you find the channel, hit the subscribe button. It's free. The Other People podcast is on social media, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. You can find it on Twitter. The handle is at Other PPL over there. If you would like to email me, if you have feedback, the email address for this program is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. And if you would like to read my latest novel, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It's almost a year old at this point. It's available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. It's a work of autofiction. So if you would like to find out what's happening with me, you can read my novel. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So my guest, once again, is Tara Conklin. She is the author of the New York Times bestselling novels, The House Girl and The Last Romantics. Community Board is her third novel available right now from Mariner Books. It was the official March pick of the book club and I am very pleased to have Tara Conklin here on this program and to get to share this conversation with all of you right now. So here we go. This is Tara Conklin and her new novel, One More Time, is called Community Board. I had actually started this book before the pandemic because I developed this very unhealthy obsession with my neighborhood next door board and I just got totally kind of interested in how on this virtual sphere you saw both the best and the worst of humanity and how people, you know, who were for the most part, not anonymous. I mean, you could see their names would say the most outrageous things, you know, online to people who lived 
right around them, you know, I mean, within spitting distance of their neighbors and they were saying these crazy things, but then also these like real acts of kindness and, and neighborliness and community. So I was just really interested in that kind of, you know, juxtaposition. And then COVID happened and, you know, we went into quarantine and- Which I have to say- Today is the three-year anniversary. We're recording this on St. Patrick's Day. So that this is like the three-year anniversary wow. of lockdown, right? Wow. You know, I'm in Washington State, which was, if you remember, ground zero for COVID. Right. So we actually, we went under earlier than I think a lot of the country. And because our schools closed kind of the end of February. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, the schools are going to close for two weeks. What am I going to do with my kids? (laughs) And then, yeah, two years later. Um, So at the very beginning, I, I couldn't write a word. It just seemed like the world was potentially ending. And I had three children to usher through remote schooling and not having nervous breakdowns and myself not having a nervous breakdown and writing fiction seemed distinctly just superfluous. You know, it just seemed like a silly diversion from the real world things that were, that were happening. So, so I didn't write for about, I don't know, three or four months. And then I, realized that I really needed it for myself. And I really wanted to write something funny. I wanted to sort of start laughing and smiling again. And I couldn't really do that watching the news or, you know, looking at the state of the world. So I decided to create a fictional world and a story that would make me giggle during the day <laughs> as I was writing. And I mean, you say you wanted to giggle and you wanted to kind of have some fun and you needed to do this for yourself. The word community is in the title of your novel. Mm-hmm. And it this feels very much like from a pandemic perspective, like an attempt to create your own like sense of community or experience of community through Darcy Clipper and this cast of characters in Murbridge. Mm-hmm. And I get that. I mean, right. We were all sort of cocooned in our houses. And while children and family is great, you know, (laughs) it has its limitations. At some point you want to get out and do stuff. Yeah. You need a little, little more diversity than the people who are related to by blood. Yeah. And also I, I realized that sort of the, the virtual community that existed both on these apps and also, you know, I mean, I had never heard of Zoom before. Who used Zoom before COVID? But these virtual ties increased in importance because we were having no face-to-face interactions. You know, the like little community on my next door board became that much more vital to, to my sort of mental health and a lot of people's mental health. I mean, that's where we were finding our community was was online. Let's talk about the Nextdoor app. I think we, I have the same thing. <laughs> does, it have a, does it have a green logo? Does it, yes. Okay. In fact, originally the book was supposed to be green. I was lobbying hard for green, but I got outvoted. <laughs> so I think that this app, I mean, these kinds of, there's also, uh, what's the other one? Mm, oh my God. It's they're like, all, Yeah. I forget. I'm totally blanking. A friend of mine actually used to work for them. And it was like, it's like where you post stuff. I mean, on in LA, 
I feel like we're people. It's like, why are there helicopters over our neighborhood? Like, who, yeah, it, who got shot? You know, totally. Like, oh, no, that's my neighborhood. Did anybody hear gunshots? Did anybody hear, you know, was that gunshots? No, just setting off some Fourth of July fire fireworks. So there's that. And then, and I have to say, I have a limited capacity because like things get so tedious. Like I, yeah, somebody yeah. will say, and your book speaks to this in a very funny way. <laughs> somebody will be like, there was a black man walking down the street with his hood on, you know, like, and it's like, then someone will be like, Hey, racist. And then they'll get into yeah, a fight and yeah. you're just like, Oh my God. Oh like, yeah. It's depressing, you know? To yeah, s- it is. This is what I mean by the worst of humanity and the best of humanity. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's a lot of prejudices that come out. A lot of racism comes out on these just kind of, and things that, you know, people will be like, I'm just describing what the person looked like, you know, well, <laughs> like they'll couch it and all these sorts of, of sort of disclaimers, but at bottom, it'll be a very offensive statement. Or, um, or, or the, the, the opposite will happen where it'll be like, they legitimately saw some guy like break into a car and they're yeah. trying to describe him so that people know who's the guy who's breaking into cars and somebody will be like, why does it matter? That he's... Yeah. And it'd yeah. be like, well, I'm just, you know, I'm just describing. So it's yeah. like, it's just a lot of like online-ness when you're yeah. dealing in these, in these uh, neighborhood apps. But like you said, sometimes it'll be like, hey, I'm 86 years old and I have trouble getting around. Could anybody possibly bring me some groceries? And people yeah. will like flock to do it. And that's lovely, yeah. you know? Yeah. So you, you see that too. Yeah. I mean, during the pandemic, one of my neighbors, um, uh, son was turning five and it was very early on in the pandemic and, you know, he couldn't have a birthday party. He couldn't have friends over. He couldn't go to the pool or go to the, you know, arcade or anything. So my neighbor put a little notice up that they were having a birthday party outside and they handed out sparklers and the entire street came out with their sparklers and we kept our distance, but for this little boy's birthday and half of those people I had never met before, but we were all out there singing happy birthday for her son. And it was, it was very sweet and lovely. And that sense of community, certainly on my little block here in Seattle has, has, maintained over the over, since since COVID started we've kind of maintained that sense of cohesion which is really nice it's, it's nice to know your neighbors well yeah it's nice to know that you there's good people around you and yeah people who like actually care about one another and just care about people in general and I'm now recalling well, I guess it was my wife's birthday maybe that's what it was but like long story short for a time during lockdown we had my son's aide. He's disabled. So we had my son's aide from school living with us. Oh, wow. Because literally on this day, three years ago, it was like, you're either going to lose your job or you have to like move in with us because we can't have you going back and forth because he's also yeah. uh, immunocompromised. So it's like all yeah. this stuff. Yeah. So she moved in with us. She's like a hippie from Vermont. And she has, of course, musician friends. <laughs> like that's all that's all she has. It's just people who can uh-huh. like play the ukulele and stuff. But <laughs> she had this friend who is a like a like a wonderful musician, plays the guitar, can sing like an angel. And on my wife's birthday, we like planned it out and she brought her amp and stood in our front lawn, this like wireless amp, and like played a concert for her. Oh. And like everybody came out of their houses on our street because they could hear it. 
Mm-hmm. And it turned into this like lovely moment that otherwise, you know, like without the pandemic we would almost certainly not have happened. So Yeah. Yeah. There were good moments even though There were some good moments. There were. And that's I mean, in the book, you know, Darcy experiences both the good and the bad of uh of her community and I mean, at the beginning, she really is shunning people and she doesn't want to see anyone. And and so, I mean, I was really trying, even though the book takes place in 2019, I was trying to recreate kind of the, the emotional and mental and physical situation that I was going through and my friends were going through for Darcy um, after her after her disastrous marital breakdown. Right. So let's set this up for people. Darcy okay. Cle- Darcy Clipper <laughs> is the heroine of Community Board. Yes. The at, hapless heroine. The hapless heroine. And she, at the very beginning of the novel, experiences a rupture in her mm. life with her husband, Skip, mm-hmm. uh, like f- taking off with his skydiving instructor, Bianca. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so she is reeling from this and she moves to the town of Murbridge, Mass, in Western Mass, which I think is where you're from, right? Yes. And she goes to her parents' house. Is it okay that I'm doing this? Maybe you should do this. She goes to her parents' house. I'll, right. I'll hand I'll <laughs> hand it off to you. I'll hand it off to you. Um, she goes to her, you know, back to her childhood home, which she remembers as like this place of warmth and comfort and love. And she's an only child. She has a very close relationship with both her parents. And she's a little bit, shall we say, coddled spoiled she hasn't really truly broken free uh like really become fully independent yet even though she's 29 years old um and she returns home to kind of you know have her back scratched and eat some homemade muffins and mend her broken heart but she walks into her house and discovers that her parents have left they've moved to arizona and neglected to tell her about it so so that is why she is then plunged into this sort of spiral of despair and she stays in her house by herself and is so angry at her parents that she doesn't want to talk to them let's let's and let's let's talk a little bit about darcy's regimen during this self-imposed <laughs> period of isolation in her childhood uh-huh. home uh-huh. she's eating canned food yeah, that her mother had kept in case of some apocalyptic event. I think it. As, I think it was Y two K. It started with Y two K. Yes, yeah. but as my editor pointed out to me, she was like, "Wait a second, they would be dead from botulism. Darcy would die from botulism if she was eating canned food that had been uh, sitting there since Y two K." So, so there is kind of a revolve. Like her mother is is also replenishing the supplies because she has fears of some kind of you know disaster event necessitating some canned food yeah well there's an epistolary exchange that recurs throughout the novel between darcy and her parents Mm -hmm. and her mom in particular it's funny it's so spot on like her mother i believe is like warning her about email scams yeah it's just the sort of stuff that my parents do my my dad taking your hand down the down the garbage disposal (laughs) (laughs) whatever you do darcy yeah Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, 
a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So Darcy is reeling and you know, something that it makes me think about and, you know, not only the, the situation that she's in, but the situation that we were in in real life that we were talking about just a moment ago with the pandemic and with the neighborhood app and with this impulse to isolate, especially in a time of crisis and like emotional trauma and just deep difficult life stuff. Mm-hmm. It's this question of like whether or not people are worth it. I feel like that's really down deep at the heart of this book. And it's been on yeah. my, it's on my mind a lot. I think it's on maybe everybody's mind at a lot or at turns, but people are tough. <laughs> people are tough. <laughs> you, yeah. You know, like if you're going to get involved in your community or if you're going to nurture friendships and family relationships and you're going to kind of be in the mix you have to come to terms with that i think it's yeah ne- it's never a smooth ride maybe i mean maybe it is for some people do you have any 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 friends who have managed to do it that way <laughs> um gosh not at this point <laughs> i mean maybe ask my yeah 16 year old although she would say no as well yeah i mean people are hard and maintaining relationships are a lot of work, no matter how great that relationship is, be it a friend, relationship, family, romantic, you know, to really maintain a relationship is is work. And I think Darcy, I mean, that's the question that she asks herself because she cuts herself off from her friends. She cuts herself off from her parents. She, you know, is writing draft emails to her soon-to-be ex-husband, but she never sends them. Um, She's really, you know, decided that she is just going to live by herself uh, for as long as it takes and she doesn't need anyone else. And, you know, that's that's also not really an option, which she learns and which I think we all know deep down. And I mean, all these studies, you know, my parents are getting older and and all of these studies about sort of what leads to longevity and high quality of life and your older years, it's all about community and maintaining, you know, quality relationships. But what's interesting is that I read this thing not that long ago that was talking about sort of the kinds of relationships that that lead to this sense of well-being and this longevity. And they were saying like it 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 doesn't really matter if it's your best friend, or if it's the barista at the coffee shop that you see every day and say hi to, or your mailman who's like, you know, delivering your mail and you stop and chat, like that kind of everyday, you know, interactions of kindness, that that just basic sense of community really has an impact on mental health and physical health, which I think is really interesting. And 
So it is worth it is worth it if you want to live an extra, you know, five to ten years. That's, well, that's talk quite... to your barista. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is what I find interesting though, though, is that there's a there's this uh, element of self interest involved. Oh yeah, I you know, guess it's, that's true. It's there like, is. <laughs> like it's like I'm extending myself towards you, not because I actually want to know you, but because I want to live longer. <laughs> I guess, yeah, you could, yeah, yeah. And, um, but I, I still think it's worth doing. And a question that I have for you on a personal level is: Are you good at this? Are you are you somebody who is good at like making and keeping friends? Do you struggle with it? Like, where are you on that spectrum? I, I, I have a lot of friends from, from sort of every period of my life and I've moved around a fair amount. I've lived in a lot of different places and sort of each kind of period of my life. I've, I have like a little, like a core group that I stay in touch with and who are very, very important to me. I have a a group of friends. We go away every year for a weekend. We live, we've lived all over the country, all over the world, but Every year for the past 22 years, we go away for a long weekend, the five of us, just just the five of us, no partners, no kids, nobody else. And we've done it through marriages, divorces, you know, pregnancies, breastfeeding. Um, and and that is like, so I would say that, yeah, I do really prioritize those relationships. And I I think... I mean, I don't know what that says about me. Maybe I'm just very needy. <laughs> well, listen, listen, this sounds, and I, I don't mean to be, I don't, I don't want to over gender things, but this sounds female to me. I, I often, Yeah. I mean, there is a lot of, you know, there are all the studies that say that men, yeah, especially once they get married, it's like they cut off ties. They're just about the family and they don't, they don't maintain the friendships in the same way that women do. I don't know. Do you think that's true? Well, okay. I want to, I'm going to actually, <laughs> I'm going to turn this around and consult you mm-hmm. because I just had an exchange. I'll give you an exchange that I feel like is emblematic of guy relationships in general, mm-hmm. but it's one of these things that has puzzled me for a long time. Good friend of mine from college. We go back. We had great times together, like kindred spirits, both creative souls, but not in like great communication post-college. I mean, maybe for a period that sort of faded once we got married and you don't have to say to the way that it does, mm-hmm. you get married, you have kids, yeah. things get, you, you communicate less, you see each other less. Yeah. But every once in a while we will text. And just the other day he texted me like an old Christmas card that I had sent, which like included like a piece of creative writing that is like pretty cringe. I feel like embarrassed <laughs> about it, but I was young. I meant uh-huh. well. And I texted him and I was like, whoa, like blast from the past. And I was like, hey, I want to hear. And th- th- this exchange could happen. Like it could have happened three years ago, five. It's happened many times. And I'll say, hey, I w- I'm going to call you. I want to hear how you're doing. Because mm-hmm. I genuinely do want to be friends. I'm sort of a dog personality. Like mm-hmm. if you come at me with a text, I'll be like, hey, let's talk. How you doing? Like, And I called him and I left a voicemail. Never heard from him. This has happened like 10 times since I'm like, sorry. Yeah. And I'm like, and I, and I know he's still my friend. I don't doubt, yeah, yeah. but I just don't think he can do the phone. I think yeah, he's, you know, yeah. I think maybe it's pot. He's a, he's a stoner. Maybe it's just too much. <laughs> I don't know what it is. It is funny how phone calls now are 
sort of an order above in intimacy, you know, texting, emails, phone is like, my kids are like, mom, don't call them. Listen, I want (laughs) to lead, I want to lead a counter revolution back towards phone calls. Like what happened to picking up the phone and having a call with somebody and talking to them as a human being? Yeah. It's crazy that it's like, no, I, I mean, texting, yeah. you, if you go beyond texting, it's like a faux pas. And I think, uh-huh. so I feel like a weird loser because <laughs> my own good friend is like, no, that's... oh my God, not him again. I, mean, I don't want, yeah. I'm I not going to answer that text or that phone, phone message. I mean, I, I'm also a talker. I like to get on the phone and talk and, um, so if you need to, you can call me. <laughs> <laughs> Better watch out. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm I'm just a person who I think, you know, as writers, I think we do have an introverted streak, whether we're good with people or not. Like some people are just totally introverted. And that's not me. I don't think that's you. Uh, just I'm from- not totally introverted. But I do think, I mean, there's one thing with maintaining friendships and, and kind of talking on the phone one-on-one, doing for example, book promotion and going to big events and smiling for five hours straight. And, you know, I mean that and having to talk to big groups of people and that's sort of another magnitude of, of, of extroverted that I still find difficult. Like after I do those sorts of things, I need to go and like lay down for like two days. Yeah. I cannot stand. I mean, I can stand doing a reading, but I really don't like it. Yeah. I'd yeah. much rather do, I'd much rather do this. I would do a podcast interview where you're talking with somebody, but to stand up and read from my book and like, you're worried about, is anybody going to show up? And then I know you ask a, you open it up to questions. Like everyone's just saying, nobody has yet. <laughs> just forget it. <laughs> nobody wants to be there. It's just like, you know, makes up like maybe like your parents or your, you know, I don't know. Yeah. It just seems well, like. My launch is coming March 28th, Elliot Bay Books. (laughs) I guess you got to do it. You got to do it. Yeah, you got to do it. And I mean, you know, I mean, and I consider myself, I mean, this is my, you know, I used to be a lawyer. Like I never thought that I could get published. Like I never thought that I would be in this position. So I, I do feel very grateful and lucky that I get to, you know, write books and people read them and people will buy them at Elliott Bay and I get to go and talk about it. So there's, you know, it is, it is kind of a, it's a double-edged. It's a high, it's a high class problem as they say, right? Yeah. Yeah. To have to go like read to your adoring fans. (laughs) (laughs) Or at least the people who all owe me favors. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Who I've strong armed into coming. That's right. Or guilt ripped, yeah. You got to cash those favors. You got to use the, <laughs> the neighborhood app. Just put it up there. I'm going to be at Elliott Bay. Um, Come on down. Let's talk about Western Mass because, okay. like, Europe, you don't live there. You, like you said, you've lived all over, but you're writing like back in the direction of your roots. Yeah. So, like, why and what's the experience like and like i i guess of of all places to want to sort of build your imaginary community while why there 
Well, I think your your hometown just gets baked into your DNA in a way that no other place does, or at least it certainly has for me. And, you know, I left when I was 18. I grew up in a in a small town called Stockbridge in in the Berkshires in Western Mass. And I, I knew fairly early on that I did not want to remain in a small town in Western Mass. But, you know, all three of my books have a tie to the Northeast. And I have not lived in the Northeast since I, well, I went to law school in New York. So I did live in New York for a while. But I don't know when I, when I, particularly with this book, because I was sitting in my house. I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't do any research. You know, I I naturally gravitated to the place that I felt the most confident about describing and the place that that felt most comfortable to me. And that was that was a little town in Western Mass. Can I ask, you know, my, can my I ask mom you a question? still lives in the area. Yeah. Okay. I just want to ask a question because you said you left when you were 18. But your mom still lives there, so you would return to visit mm-hmm. frequently. Yeah. Okay. And actually, my sister, one of my sisters, just moved back to the area after living away for you know, same as same as I did. She left when she was about eighteen, and now she's back with her family. So it's a nice place. <laughs> well, yeah. The reason I ask is because I left the Midwest when I was eighteen, but then my parents moved away from the Midwest, mm-hmm. so I never returned. Yeah. And I consequently have never written about it because I really can't remember it. I yeah. think you almost need to go back and sort of like drive around your old neighborhood and revisit your old haunts and stuff for it to maybe stay with you. Yeah, that's probably true. I have been back probably once a year, once every other year since I left. So I have kind of watched it develop and grow and maintain a connection with with that area. But, but yeah, but the, <laughs> I've often, after the book was kind of done and said, I thought, God, I really should have chosen a more, a name for the town that was more dissimilar than my actual hometown. My hometown is Stockbridge and I chose Murbridge for, for, I thought a kind of good reason about the mushrooms that grow in the town, but it is very easy to sort of draw parallels between uh, the ta- the fictional town and my actual hometown. It's, it's like on the page, it seems very quaint. I wanted to live there. <laughs> it is very quaint. It's a very nice place. Yeah. I have not you spent uh, any time out in Western Mass. Yeah. But it seems like kind of remote and nice and oh, lovely. Is... Two and a half hours to New York City. Okay. So About two to Boston. Fond memories or did you find it like cloistered as a kid? Were you ready to get out? I was ready to get out. I mean, I had a very boring kind of, you know, isolated childhood, which was fine. I didn't die. I didn't like... What do you mean? What do you mean isolated? Just meaning that you were in a small town and not close to like any... Yeah. I mean, I wasn't... I wasn't... And also, I mean, I definitely felt... I mean, I felt a little bit like a fish out of water. Like I was not in my place. And I knew that very early on living there, which is not to say that it wasn't, it was a perfectly fine, great place to grow up. But I did know that I wanted to leave. What is your place? And I did not want to move back. You know, it's funny. I, I, I mean, I really do love Seattle where I live now. Seattle's changed a lot, though. I've lived here for 13 years, and it has changed a lot in that time. 
I don't know. I guess my place is more where, I mean, now it's where my kids are really. My oldest is getting ready to apply to colleges and Mm -hmm. I'm going to just follow her. I think (laughs) move into those (laughs) dorms. (laughs) I've had that thought. Here I am, honey. Yeah. That sounds fun. That actually sounds kind of fun. I'm sure. I mean, for you, maybe not for yeah, your daughter. For, yeah. No, she would probably murder me. But, um, but I don't know. I mean, it's a good question. Like, I mean, I, I lived in London for eight years and loved London. I lived in New York for a long time. I lived in Boston. So, and each one of the places that I've lived, I mean, I definitely enjoyed it and loved it and found good people and, and good restaurants and good baristas. I don't know. I mean, I might just be kind of a little bit of a roamer around. <laughs> I get that. I mean, I moved. Yeah. Around, I've moved around a lot, and I often have wondered aloud, even on this show, like, where is my, the place? Am I in the right place? Like, it's, I've lived in Los Angeles twenty something years now. Oh wow! And I never, I never like grew up thinking like it's going to be L.A. Like it yeah. feels like accidental almost that I'm here. Yeah. And yet my whole life is passing here, and when I start to think about it, it makes me a little bit like creeped out i'm like oh my god like i'm spending like 99 percent of my human existence like in this city like in these co- <laughs> you know yeah. you, you go away every once in a while but most of my life is passing here well where would you move if you were to move every time uh, i have the conversation with myself or with someone else i end up being like i don't know like the weather's great here uh, family here friends here my kids were born here i like the idea of them having like a home base yeah. I did not. I mean, I moved around a little bit and kind of lost my first. I was born in Milwaukee. So then we left and I kind of lost everything. And that's hard. You know, you, mm-hmm. you sort of have to start all over again. And then you go to college, you lose all that, you know, and then you leave college, you lose all that. So yeah. it's hard to kind of reinvent yourself. I like the idea maybe of just sticking here and I mean, there's worse places to be, right? I mean, there's a For reason. Sure. There's a reason why there's 10 million people in yeah, Southern LA California. Yeah, great. So and you get a lot of sun to yeah, shine. I know, which you... isn't great for my. I'm, I'm a pale, <laughs> like you're like Western European blend, so that's not the greatest <laughs> for me. But I'm wearing sunscreen and wearing a hat nowadays. So there you go. Let's talk about writing funny. Mm. Is this something that comes naturally? to you is this something because you said earlier you kind of explicitly were in the mood to try to be funny yeah and was this a a a pivot for you were there things that you had to do for this book that you didn't have to do for others did you have particular funny friends that you were like vetting your material with (laughs) like is is this funny (laughs) you know I kind of just trusted my gut with it when I, I, it was definitely a pivot. I was worried that I couldn't do it, but because it was coming from such a need for me, um, it almost, I mean, I won't say, well, I wouldn't say it it was easy to write, but this was the, by far the easiest book I've written. I mean, my first, you know, I mean, granted, you know, this is my third novel. It's not like I have dozens and dozens to compare it to, but I mean, my first book, as a first novel is, is just this utter, you know, obsessive act of faith and, and love and craziness because you have no idea if anything is ever going to come of it. And then my second was 
I mean, I really felt like I grew so much as a writer. I the task that I set myself at the beginning of that book, which was is one which that, is the last romantics, the last romantics, yeah, which is a it's a family epic that follows four siblings over about a hundred years, and so easy, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I I actually turned that book in three times and twice. The first two times, my editor said, Tara, this this is not the book that we're going to publish. And I was like, no, 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 this, this is the book. This is the book I've been working on. And um, so it was, it was, it took me about, I don't know, five or six years when I thought it was going to take me two or three. It was very much a, a, a emotional, like, you know, there's blood on those pages <laughs> of, of that book. And, and I really learned I learned so much writing it and really grew as a writer writing that book. And then with Community Board, because my, you know, I, I had like a very clear project that I wanted to do. I wanted to look at this, the Nextdoor-esque app and the communications that arise in it. I wanted, once once kind of COVID started, I was like, okay, I want to examine these conditions, but I don't want to say the word COVID. I don't, I want it to be completely before COVID. So I said it in 2019, you know, it takes place over this one calendar year. And so it was just a much more manageable project. And I, I don't know, I just kind of found Darcy's voice pretty early on and, and it, I just kind of went with it. (laughs) And it was just, and there's, I mean, if you look, uh, you know, there's so much material on uh, Nextdoor or any, you know, there's so much material within any kind of community board. And there is so much material within the human race, you know, I mean, like there's so much silliness and nonsense. I mean, that's the the quote from Our Town that's in the epigraph when you get near the human race, there's layers and layers of nonsense and and. So that was sort of my my jumping off point and finding the nonsense wasn't that hard. <laughs> right. I mean, I feel like too with those with those neighborhood apps, people all like some people anyway, they almost post as if no one's gonna read it. Yeah. It's yeah. it's like a it's like a stunning level of candor sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean it's like you you do know that the people who are reading this live, you know, a stone's throw away from you. So do you do you post? Very, very rarely. Yeah. But I do lurk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a real lurker. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> and it was very funny. As soon as I told, you know, all my friends that I was that I was writing this book about that was based on a, a next door app. I, everyone started sending me like their favorite posts. Cause of course every single neighborhood has their own, you know, moments of scandal and controversy and the silly, you know, the silly disputes that erupt on these boards. So I was just, yeah, I still, uh, people are still sending me emails <laughs> like, I, Oh my God, is it too late? Can we, can, can you, can you, get this one in there i feel like some of this like you you make a good point about this being like very neighborhood specific like every single town city neighborhood has their own iteration of this and Mm -hmm. in a big city like seattle or los angeles it's a little bit more anonymous it's got to be 
maybe even more tedious when you live in a town where everybody sort of knows each other, <laughs> right? Like Murbridge, you know, like, Oh yeah. So, and you know, yeah. I mean, but my, you know, mine is for my little neighborhood in Seattle. So like not everybody knows everybody, but you know, a lot of people, right? right. <laughs> it's definitely not fully anonymous. The postings. Are, are you in like Seattle proper, like in those Hills and, I'm in, yeah, I'm in Madrona, which is a little neighborhood. It's about, I don't know, like 50 minute drive to downtown. Oh, okay. It's pretty, it's pretty central. I don't know it that well. I spent, you know, I was there for a work trip a few years ago and I tried to like explore. It's beautiful. It is. It's a great city. It is. I, I really love it. Well, I want to talk a little, you mentioned earlier that you were mm -hmm. a lawyer and you didn't yeah. think that this was going to be possible the life that you're in now and the work that you're doing now and i know that people listening will hear that and lean in because it's always it's always hard <laughs> to make your way yeah. as a writer and i think every path is a little bit different but i'm i'm interested to hear you talk about how you did it like you were working as an attorney you were living in mm -hmm. london like that's a pretty like that's not like a job you can sort of do halfway right <laughs> No, it's not. Yeah, so I, I, yeah, I was, I started in New York and then I moved to London and um, was doing international arbitration, which is basically dispute resolution, but with, you know, international parties. So I was traveling a lot and, and it was very, you know, I really enjoyed kind of the first half of my career as a lawyer. I mean, I was doing mostly writing and research, which is what I love to do. And, and I mean, just, just going back even before I became a lawyer, I mean, I was always writing, you know, like writing was for me how I entertained myself. Writing, and, writing fiction. Yeah. Yeah. I was always, I always had like a story or like a little, and I always kept journals. I, I loved writing in my journals and like, you know, I'm a big kind of coffee shop eavesdropper. <laughs> right. And... But I just, but it seemed like it was not something that I could make a career out of. And, and, you know, when I was in college, getting your MFA, it wasn't the thing that it is today. Like getting your MFA meant that you would basically go be an English high school teacher, which I, I knew I didn't want to be an English high school teacher. Not that, I mean, you know, that's an amazing career. And I have it's such incredibly fond memories of my high school English teachers, but that, that wasn't what I wanted to do. So I just, I, it just saying like, I want to be a fiction writer seemed like saying I want to be a, you know, a rock star or the astronaut or something. So, but writing was still something that I loved to do and something that I was good at. And so going to law school was almost kind of a, <laughs> I don't know, it was, it, it was a way to use my writing skills and, and it, it's a great, at least the kind of law that I was doing, if you're curious about people and about how the world works, it was a great, it was very educational and very stimulating intellectually. So, so I, so I did that for uh, about seven years and the last two years I had two kids very close together. They're 19 months apart 
And uh, the good thing about living in London when you're pregnant and when you have babies is that you get a real maternity leave. So I took nine months off um, for each of my kids. And during that time, you know, I had worked, I had always worked. I mean, when, uh, you know, I started working when I was like 16 years old and, and my law job was incredibly demanding and I was working all of these hours and traveling and blah, blah, blah. So, um, when I went on maternity leave, like after I got over that initial sort of freak out of being a new parent and can I keep this newborn alive? I was like, holy cow, I have got so much time. Because they, <laughs> they sleep. They sleep they a lot. They sleep so much. Right. So, so that's when I really started writing seriously, which is, you know, it's so funny because I feel like I have so many conversations with younger women these days about, oh my God, younger writers, uh, women writers about you know, I really, I'm just so worried about having kids and it's taking, it's going to take away from my writing time. And I feel like my, like for me, it was just totally switched. Like I didn't really take it seriously until I had kids. And I mean, granted, it was kind of an unusual situation that I had, you know, that I was abroad and I had a real maternity leave. And and luckily my kids were healthy and happy and good sleepers and all that. But I think there's also something about becoming a parent and thinking, you know, what what sort of lesson do I want to give this child? Like, what sort of life do I want to show them as a, a life for them to emulate? And at that point in time, I wasn't loving being a lawyer anyhow. And I, and in the back of my mind, I had always thought, okay when I retire from my real job, that's when I'll start writing seriously. And I just thought to myself, like, would you, would, would I tell my kid that? Like, like, wait, like you have this thing that you love to do and you should like wait till the very end of your life to actually do it. <laughs> Good job, mom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, so I started The House Girl, my first novel, during those maternity leaves. And um, and then I, I kind of, it came to a point where, you know, I had sort of half a book done. I had two little kids at home. Um, my husband at the time was, had taken a leave from his job to kind of be more of a stay-at-home parent. I was, I was back at the law, like working nonstop and after the time that I had had at home with my kids and writing, then like the the kind of contrast to going back into the office and, and getting back onto that treadmill, I was just like, no way. <laughs> I can't do it. Yeah. So I left. So that's when I left the law and we left London because if you're not, you know, making a corporate lawyer salary, uh, it's kind of hard to, to live in a city like London. So and my family, I have two sisters and they both at various points have lived in Seattle. And so I'd always been out to Seattle and and my youngest sister still lives here with her family. And so we kind of came out here and we're like, okay, well, I guess we'll stay in Seattle for a little while. <laughs> and, and so this is where I sort of, I became a writer was in this city. And 
luckily for me, I mean, I had no idea what an amazing literary town Seattle is, you know, when I moved here, it was pure luck. And I very fairly quickly found a community of writers and which was incredibly important also. I mean, just going back to the idea of community, I mean, uh, you know, writing, as you know, is such a solitary, isolating kind of profession. And especially when you know nothing about publishing or, or, you know, I had no idea if I was ever going to get my first novel kind of out into the world. And I found a group of people who were in similar situation to me. And were they public? So unpublished writers, you mean like you were in a community? There's where- a, there's a place in Seattle, maybe you've heard of it. It's called the Richard Hugo house. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And um, they have classes and they have speakers come. And so I started taking classes there. And those were really like my first, like, honest, like real writing classes. And it and so it was people that I met there and just just like going there and like hearing other writers. They have like an open mic once a month where people that's like where I first read anything was at the open mic there. And just sort of being around other people who were doing this thing, this trying to become writers, you know, uh, was so important to me. And so, and it just sort of opened my, my world, it rocked my world. And yeah, so that's kind of, and then, uh, I don't know, do you want me to keep going? Well, <laughs> and talk? I want to, I want to ask you about the last romantics mm. because, you know, it's your second book. It's this ambitious uh, undertaking the scale, uh, you know, like you said, it covers a hundred years or something. It's like this, mm-hmm. it's a big, it's a big, uh, a big task. And the book gets picked. Well, like, was it like read with Jenna on the today? Yeah. Show? Is it the today show? It's like one the of the today show. Yeah. So it's one of these books that gets blessed with this yeah, amazing, like, uh, publicity. What do you even call it? Like publicity marketing, like, a, yeah. a book goes on television like that and gets the endorsement of uh, Jenna Hager and all of a sudden it's a bestseller. I mean, that that's yeah. a big breakout. So you just, and or at least that's the way that I observing. Oh it. yeah. It was, it was huge. And that was, my book was actually the first one. It was like the, her inaugural pick. So at the time, you know, I, I, I didn't know, no one really knew what was going to happen or how big it was going to be, but it, 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 ended up being, yes, a huge, huge stroke of luck for that book and brought it to so many more readers than I think would have would have kind of found it on their own. So, okay. So for people listening mm. who might be writerly, what is the material impact of something like that happening? Because I think most writers dream of like Oprah picking their book or <laughs> Reese Witherspoon or who are the, you know, and, and to be honest, it's usually... I feel like women authors tend to benefit from this more because usually it's women who run the book clubs. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, I feel like Oprah, I guess like what she, she picked Jonathan Franzen and he sort of screwed it up. So yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe that's. You uh... can thank Jonathan for, uh, <laughs> right. for that. <laughs> but the, the, the question really is like, what, how did it change your life? Did it change your life? I mean, did it change my life? I, you know, it did kind of change my life because it it elevated that book. I, I mean, I you know, I got a two book deal with my publisher uh, after that, and 
you know, I mean, I, you know, people still talk about that book. I mean, I was just in New York for a, for a Jenna Bush Hager event celebrating four years of her book club and, and met a lot of the other writers. I mean, there really is a community. I think that her, I I don't know how the other book clubs work, but the, I mean, she is so dedicated to, um, to literature and to promoting literacy and she, and creating community around, around the book. So, you know, the authors that she's chosen, we all, not every single one of us, but I, I've met so many of them now or become friends with them over social media. And it's, it is, yeah, it's, she's wonderful and very, very genuine uh, uh, about her love of, of reading and her love of these books. So, I mean, it's so funny because you write a book, right? And like, you have no idea. You really have zero idea as to what is going to come out of, like, if anyone is going to ever pick it up. And the the promotion and the marketing and all of that happens so separately. Like I was not involved in any of that. I was in an airport and I got a phone call, you know, I was going, I was like doing some pre-publication events with some booksellers and I was like running between gates and my phone rang and it was my publicist saying, oh, Tara, good news. Jenna Bush Hager has chosen you for her book club. And I was like, oh, you know, do I have to go to Texas for that? Like, is she, where does she live? Like, I really thought that it was like going to be her and like her friends and, and like, we were going to drink some wine and talk about the last romantics. And, um, and obviously that, yeah, that was not, it was slightly larger scale than that. Um, but, but it, but it, it, like, I had nothing to do with that. Like I wrote a book and I would have, and I worked really hard on the book and I love, the book. I'm very proud of it. But I think all of my feelings about the book would be the same whether, you know, it had been picked by, by for the, for Jenna's book, book club or not. Did you, um, wait, did you went on TV? Like you had to go on the Today Show? Well, I went on via Instagram live, so I did not go on the actual show. But you were like in conversation on the show via Instagram. Or, or just via, uh, yeah. or, or the book club. I think it was just, I think it was just on an Instagram live. Like, I don't think it was on, the, but she did unveil the, like the book, like she opened it, you know, she unwrapped the book. It was so funny. Cause I, I actually didn't know that they were going to do that. And my dad was like sitting, drinking his coffee and like watching the Today Show and like saw my book. So he, yeah. I mean, that's all you need, right? I mean, yeah, come on. That was pretty awesome. Yeah. So, Okay. So that's amazing. And I think it kind of, it's like experiences like that. When a book does well, it may be the best material benefit aside from maybe financial stuff is the fact that you just get to do another one, right? It's like, it's like you get to, you get to jump to the next lily pad or whatever. Yeah. Um, But I think one of the things that I'm hearing from you as you talk about your career in law, having babies, um, and continuing to write books. This is your third book. That's always of interest to me. I think so many writers, maybe every writer struggles to get the work done and has like a litany of reasons why it can't get done, like obligations. Usually it's work stuff, right? Or the demands of parenthood. But Mm -hmm. I read an essay that you wrote for Vogue uh, about going through a divorce 
mm-hmm. and just the messiness of like the emotional parts of life, uh, whatever it happens to be. Like, I don't know. I, I have been through, you know, a version of that with like the my son's health condition. You're trying to like write through stuff. You're just like, how am I going to find time? And sometimes you just feel like you can't do it. But I think I'm curious to know how you sort of forged your way through. Uh, I know there are pauses and there are times when you feel like it's all for naught, but you've managed to keep going. You talk a little bit about how. (laughs) Well, I mean, for me, and this goes back to me as a, you know, 13 year old scribbling in my journal. I, I mean, writing for me has always been a real outlet, like a cathartic, experience personally before it ever became something that I did publicly. And I still, I still think of it that way. It's something that I do that I have to do. Like I, even if, you know, as my, my dad who the, the same dad who saw me, uh, my book on the today show is always like, Tara, you can always go back to the law. <laughs> I like how you call NYU it. I like, I like a how you, very good school. <laughs> I, I like how you call it the law. <laughs> it almost sounds like you're a co- it almost sounds like yeah. you're a cop or something, but no. <laughs> um, he likes that I have like a backup plan in, ca- in case this whole writing thing doesn't work out. But I mean, I I would still be doing it. Like I'll be doing it. You know, like I mean, I'm at the age now where people are, you know, my friends are like talking about well retirement and where are you going to retire and what. And I mean, I'm never going to retire. I will be writing until the day I die, hopefully, fingers crossed. And it is it, it is just part of how I process the world and how I process my own emotions. And if I, if I go a period of time without writing, I just start to feel kind of like itchy, you know? Grumpy. It's like not working out or not like, you know, you just get kind of that. Yeah, I get grumpy. <laughs> I do too. I think I think most of us do. I think most of us do. But yeah, there are also these times where life kind of intrudes. Oh yeah, for sure. And maybe you yeah. don't have like the last thing you want to do is write, or you just, or maybe you do want to write but you can't. Yeah. And then you have to sort of wait for it to return. I guess maybe the lesson is that if you hold out, it will return. <laughs> yeah, it will return. And I think also one thing that I do that is so 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 helpful is I just get out of my house. Like I go. I'm actually next week. I'm going with some friends. Um, a friend uh, has kind of a Airbnb house that they rent out, and we're going with three other writers to for the week to just kind of hang out there and and just write and like getting out of my house and and away from laundry and away from all of the myriad you know day to day stuff that you have to do, which does you know, your life is busy. Everyone's life is busy and it is easy to, to, you know, to prioritize those things above the writing because the writing is hard, you know, and like emptying the dishwasher is a pain, but it's really not that hard. (laughs) So it's like, it's easier to, to do those things. But I feel like if I remove myself from my environment and just go someplace else and say, I am writing for these three days or however much time you've got that for me is incredibly helpful and productive even if you're in a house with like six other writers this sounds like Mm -hmm. a lot there sounds like a lot of 
I feel like wine will be consumed. I'm sure we will be <laughs> drinking a fair amount of wine, yes. <laughs> but you will all get up in this house and you will set about to work on your books together. Yeah, yeah. We're all, I mean, we're all writers and um, uh, one is working on a novel, another is working on a book proposal. Actually, two, two, there are three of us working on novels and one is working on a book proposal. So get yeah. out of, so the, the, the answer is to get out of your house. Get out of your house. And I think also having a routine. Uh, I mean, I, it's something that a lot of people that I know, um, a lot of writers that I know are, are very conscientious about sort of their routines. And I, I am sometimes, <laughs> but then, you know, like the, usually I, I work first thing in the morning and I set my alarm for 5am and I get up and I do, you know, a couple hours. 5am? Yeah. Look at you. That's I also like to nap. So I usually take a nap in the middle of the day. (laughs) But I just find that like there's something about that time when like everything is quiet and you've just woken up, like your dreams are maybe still swirling around. And and I just I find that I often do my best work. I'm the most productive at that time. But then like, you know, this morning I set my alarm and I press snooze a few too many times and then I like woke up and I had to get my daughter out and I you know so so sometimes you know best laid plans the routine doesn't always happen but I think it is good to to have a routine and and also I mean when I was working on the sort of the last iteration of the last romantics I really did try to treat it like my day job you know it was that's when my kids were younger so they were you know they're much more trouble. <laughs> they right. were a lot. Now, now I have to like get them out of bed, but then they were waking me up at 5 a.m. And, uh, but I really did try to be like, okay, this is my day job. Like in the hours and when my kids are at school, like this is what I'm doing. But I think whatever, like whatever kind of mind games you have to play with yourself to get your butt in the chair on a regular basis, like, figure it out, you know, like we've all got other stuff to do and y- you just, yeah, figure out something that works for you. If it's setting your alarm early or getting out of your house or making sure keeping to a routine, you know, just do it. Or all of the above. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> I have, I appreciate it. I appreciate uh. the, uh, the insights. I congratulate you on I congratulate you on Community Board. I'm glad we're getting to, to spotlight it uh, in the book yes, club. Yes, thank you for choosing it for your book club. I, mean, I have not. I know I'm not Jenna Hager. My gratitude. I know I'm not Jenna Hager. I realize <laughs> that I don't have quite the platform, but like, <laughs> nevertheless, it is delightful to meet you, and I wish you well. Are you working on another book, or is this? Are you in a holding? I pad? am. I want? am. I'm working. I actually got two kind of in the in the mix right now very both of them are, are very different one is a murder mystery i have a fondness for a good thriller and so this is kind of a, a thriller and then the other one is an idea that i've been kicking around for a long time um about it, it's kind of a dystopian novel set in the pacific northwest it's actually the first time that i'm that i'm taking from this part of the country and it's about sort of this isolated community on a on an island and 
I can't really say any more about it because so, I haven't okay. figured it out yet. <laughs> Let me ask one question. Let me ask one question. Yeah. You talk about these two projects. Yeah. Are you going to write both of them? Or is it like, a, are you in a pattern right now where you're trying to decide which one's going to win out? No, I'll write both of them. Okay. I, I've, the, the thriller, I'm far enough along that I know, I know what's going to happen and I've got, I've got it fleshed out enough. Um, and then the other one, it's one of those ideas that like, I keep coming back to, you know, like it's been in my brain for long enough that I know I, I need to, I need to flesh it out and I need to, I need to really write it. And I, and I kind of, I kind of, yeah, circle back to it every couple of months and like have some ideas. And, but that, that is definitely a longer, that's more of a last romantics kind of time frame, I think. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I wish you yeah. well on uh, Thank all, you. all of the above. Thank you for, uh, for taking some time out of your day to talk to me. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, this was great. Thanks so much. All right, folks, there we go. That was my conversation with best-selling author Tara Conklin. Her new novel is called Community Board. It is out there right now, available from Mariner Books. You can find Tara on the internet. She has a website, taraconklin.com. She is also on social media. Track her down on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Her handle on Twitter is at T.E. Conklin. One more time, the book is called Community Board, the official March pick of the book club. Go get your copy right away. And if you would like to sign up for the book club, you can do that at thenervousbreakdown.com. It's simple. You get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. I interview book club authors on this program, so it makes for a nice, holistic, literary experience. If you had a good time and you would like to support this show for as little as $1 a month, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you want to get another people t-shirt, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. You can sign up for the free once-a-week email newsletter that I do. It's uh, easy to do. Just go to otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. Look for the little sign-up envelope. You know how it works. If you have a couple of minutes and you would be so kind, please remember to rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It helps the cause. And if you would like to watch the show, you can do that at the Other People YouTube channel. Just search for the show by name, Other PPL, over at YouTube. When you find the channel, hit the subscribe button. It's free. Likewise, you can follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Keep up with all the latest episodes, watch clips, the whole thing. And if you want to email me, the address for the show is letters at otherppl.com. Finally, my latest novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, is out there now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so you can read my book or have me read it to you. Again, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Coming up next on the program, I will be in conversation with Jinu Chong, author of the debut novel Flux, out there now from Melville House. Had a great talk with him and looking forward to sharing that with you on Wednesday. So stay tuned.